Hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. And what do I have for you today? Well, today we're going to talk about some mounting problems in the former Soviet space, the first phase of the EU's secession crisis, the perpetual secession crisis, taking effect already right before our eyes, and the increasing fragility of democratic systems around the world. All of that and more coming up. Let's get into the rapid-fire news, which is probably going to consist of most of the news today, because it's been a bit all over the place this week. So, we'll start off with, uh, the Biden administration has bop, bopped, has dropped bombs in Syria, uh, in response to U.S. troops getting hit with rockets. Now, it wasn't them bombing Syrian troops, it was them bombing, um, militias they claimed to be backed by Iran. Um... So there's that, but uh, my response to this entire situation is this, uh, particularly our troops getting hit with rockets, uh, wouldn't have happened if our troops weren't there to begin with. I am just saying that isolationism is the one true ideology. Fight me. (laughs) Well, no. But, I mean, you can't, you can't really argue with that. Let's, let's be serious here. You can't argue. There's no arguing that our troops wouldn't be getting hit with rockets in Syria if they weren't there, and we wouldn't be needing to bomb or be feeling the need to bomb militants and militias that we believe are backed by an adversary if we weren't involved in the region. Um, I'll leave it at that for now until I have another chance to preach the tenets of isolationism. Uh, Moving on... The Johnson & Johnson's vaccine was recently approved by the FDA, and this one is special compared to the others because it's a one-shot vaccine uh, versus the two-shot vaccines that everything else is. So, where you would previously see the numbers of vaccinations administered, you would have to, like, either cut it in half to get the real estimate on how many people have been truly vaccinated, because you would need to get it and then come back after a month and get the second half of the the dose. But with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, it's a one-shot. So you get it, and that's it. You don't have to come back. So that's the real game-changer behind this one, and why it's probably going to start storming the news. And it's probably going to be the one that most people, at least in America, uh, who choose to get vaccinated, this is probably going to be the one that they get vaccinated with. Uh, I remember... The Project Warp Speed that the Trump administration began um, had already, under that project, well, that operation, it was Operation Warp Speed. So under that operation, they effectively began mass producing the vaccines before they were even uh, ready. And by ready, I mean before they were, like, approved by the FDA for usage, so that in the event that they were, we would have, like, plenty ready and we would already be producing more. So, in all likelihood, the vaccine has already been mass-produced, and it's probably only going to continue to be mass-produced, especially now that it's been approved by the FDA. So, real game-changer, and I guess we can see the light at the end of the tunnel that is the pandemic. Whether or not that convinces leaders to undo lockdowns is a completely different story, Um <laughs> We'll have to see how that goes, but at the very least, America seems like it's undoing its lockdowns. I can't speak for a lot of Europe. Uh, We'll have to keep our eyes on Europe, I'll just say that. But now, onto another story that's kind of out there. Uh, Hundreds of prisoners are currently on the loose after a major prison break in Haiti. Uh, As of right now, 25 people are reported dead as a result of this. Uh, and it, as far as I know, the situation still isn't under control. I don't imagine that it would be when you have that many criminals on the loose. But, oh, poor Haiti. 
they, they've been off to a pretty rough start for 2021. I guess we could say that about everyone, really, but uh, not everyone has massive prison breaks. Unless you're Alaska. I'm pretty sure Alaska had a prison break. But Alaska's Alaska, so they won't get far. <laughs> and now we'll move on to an update on a story that we covered a couple weeks back. Uh, this one's in Nepal. Now, we covered um, the situation there, and I guess I'll read my little... Uh, note here before I go into the full recap, and that is that the Nepal Prime Minister K.P. Sharma Ali, uh, he has continued his refusal to step down even after the court ruling against his dissolution of parliament. Uh, he claims to now be awaiting parliament's decision uh, on whether or not he will have to step down, and uh, my side note here is that he likely still won't step down then, because I don't see any situation where they agree to let him stay after he tried to dissolve them. So that's the update to the situation. For those who miss, either missed the, that episode or kind of didn't, or maybe I didn't explain it good enough in that episode. Basically what had happened was this prime minister, Sharma Ali, he dissolved parliament and the president... Because in prime minister, I mean, in parliamentary systems, there's a prime minister and a president. The president kind of backed him up on this, but it ultimately went to their court. So what you had here was him saying he's in charge and the parliament took him to court over the matter. And now the update here is that the court has ruled in favor of parliament. So parliament's been reinstated for the time being. And they're probably going to vote to get rid of him. So there's the situation. And by itself, it seems... Um, uh, I don't know, how do I put it? Seemingly like a power struggle. And a seemingly insignificant power struggle. Because it's Nepal. And they're like a landlocked country in the Himalayas. But when you really think about where Nepal is suddenly it becomes a little bit more significant of a matter. N not because they're a landlocked country in the Himalayas, but because they're a landlocked country in the Himalayas smashed between India and China. That's where things get interesting. So the thing to be looking out for here is uh, plays for influence in the country by either China or India. And again, with a power struggle like this, we're seeing instability. Uh, just one of the major themes I covered, I mentioned it in the little preamble, that we're seeing democratic systems kind of be revealed to be really fragile lately. Um, and we're kind of seeing that here too. Although this is a story from 2020, but the trend has been uh, going on for at least the last few months now, where you have these elections then the election is contested, and then you have people who refuse to concede, yeah, and people who refuse to, uh, well, refuse to concede, and then you have these perpetual tensions that just continue to build. And even here in America, we have the same thing. <clears throat> Although, I would say it's on a much larger scale, on a, you know, you know in my not-so-humble opinion. But we have this here in Nepal, where the country's probably torn right now, I'd imagine. There are people who do support the prime minister, and there are people who support the parliament. Um, I'm not entirely sure on the sizes of those factions, you know, relative to one another, if it's like a 50-50 or like a 30-20, oh, or like a... Or maybe it is a 30-20 and then the rest of the country just doesn't care. Um, either way, I'm sure the giants at Nepal's doorstep, India and China, are have their eyes firmly placed on the situation in Nepal. And should the opportunity arise, they will undoubtedly move to secure influence in the country especially in the event that Nepal does 
fall into some sort of civil war. The prospect is there. And especially if even after the court rules that this man has to step down, well, not the court, the parliament rules that Sharma has to step down and he still doesn't and instead tells the military that parliament has to step down, <laughs> this could devolve really, really fast. That's That's what I'm saying here. That's what I said. Basically what I said the last time we covered this. And now we're at probably the crossroads here where Parliament is basically going to decide uh, what to do with him. And then after that comes the important piece, which is how he responds to this. Uh, I don't imagine that him that after trying to dissolve Parliament, he has any real um, respect for what they have to say. Uh, or may, maybe he'll maybe he'll respect the decision, you know? There's always that possibility, but looking at what we have in front of us, it's probably going to, the situation is probably going to deteriorate further. And that will undoubtedly create problems for Nepal itself, but openings for their neighbors. And we'll have to see how that all plays out. But now we'll move on to another country. And this one is Greece. Uh, we talked a little bit about Greece every now and then. Usually in uh, passing, when we're talking about some other country. And I guess here is kind of no different. But they get more of a spotlight right now. And that, the situation here is that Greek, the, um, the Greek tourism minister, Harry Theokaris... Harry Theokaris, uh, he has said that Greece is ready to welcome British tourists this summer, regardless of whether they have had a coronavirus vaccine. Now that is more important than it may seem because the EU has been attempting to ban the British from entering any of its member states. And here's Greece once again in defiance. Um, of the EU, and specifically what interests me here is the nature of that defiance, because he has stated that Greece is, wel is ready to welcome British tourists. Tourism equals money. British money. You see where I'm going here? I'm talking about the EU's secession crisis, and what we have here is, well, we have Greece. Uh, I talked about Greece before when I one of their parliament members openly debated <laughs> holding uh, what in effect was them holding their membership in the EU hostage until they got concessions out of Brussels. But here we have them playing a different type of underhanded game with the rest of the EU, which is where they just ignore EU's laws. And ignore the EU's wishes for their own gain. And look at the country that they're doing that with. It's Britain. The country that left. So I've outlined the perpetual secession crisis for the EU a number of times. And how British existence, uh, independent of the EU, will inevitably draw countries within the EU away from the EU. And we already have this playing out right now with Greece. Like, we usually focus on other secessionist movements like Frexit, Ital exit, a potential Spain exit, Spexit, and even the Netherlands uh, uh, secession movement from the EU. But Greece, and I imagine many of the other Eastern European members of the EU are going to probably play a different ball game with that because they actually do benefit decently from being a part of the EU. But here, they're probably just going to start playing underhanded games and holding their membership hostage. I brought up in a number of those times when I talked about the secession crisis how the British economy, as it rebounded, um, would make it appealing for other countries who left the EU. But what we have here is a country who hasn't even left yet, openly seeking 
economic ties with the now independent Britain. So in the event that Greece ever left, the ties are already there. The, the precedents are being established now where Britain is an optimal partner, economically speaking, even though it is separate from the EU. And that precedent is being set now when countries are haven't left yet. Britain is still the only one. So what happens when more countries leave? Because it's looking like Italy and France are going to be hotbeds for EU secessionism right now. And I'd imagine Spain isn't going to be far behind. And the Netherlands shocked me that they're right up there with those three. And I'd imagine that they're kind of pissing off Ireland by imposing, basically playing games with Britain that are in effect putting up hard borders between Ireland and Northern Ireland because Ireland is a part of the EU and Northern Ireland is part of the UK. So, but they have like a treaty where they're not allowed to have a hard border between each other. So there's that. Uh, We've talked about how the EU for all the criticism we can throw its way, really doesn't have a choice but to be hostile towards Britain. I mean, you can't you can't allow the British to just walk away because that would set precedent for everyone else in Europe that, oh, we can just walk away. No more EU. And obviously the EU isn't going to want that. They don't have a choice but to be hostile, if only passively hostile, towards Britain. But here... We have Greece openly in an open defiance towards the EU's hostility towards Britain and establishing economic ties, or at the very least opening themselves up for the British to make the move to establish economic ties. The Brits have to choose to go to Greece for tourism. But I guess another trend here is that economics is stronger than the politics here. Or at the very least in this instance, because everyone was hurt by the lockdowns. So now everyone's scrambling to get back on their feet. And they're going to choose their own economy over the politics of Brussels. And that in and of itself is not a good sign for the EU. Very, very interesting things here. It's always the little things that get you going. But... There's Greece, always an interesting player to look at. <clears throat> oh, excuse me. And we'll we'll see where Greece goes moving forward, and we'll we we can see where Britain's going moving forward. Everyone else is going to start to attract to them, as especially in the event that they actually do leave the EU. So Britain is probably set for right now. Uh, but while we're still in Europe. The former French president, Nicolas Sarkozy, 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 Nicolas Sarkozy, he's been convicted on corruption charges. Uh, Now, he says he will appeal this. This is an interesting story. Uh, uh, France is in a a bit of a tizzy right now. They have a whole number of issues plaguing them, from yellow vests to riots to anti lockdown protests to the economic ramifications of the lockdowns themselves, and all this as they're, what, two months away from entering their election year? Because their elections are in May, so once we get to May, they'll technically be in an election year. So, we have all these things plaguing France, and I I just thought this was an interesting thing to look at, Uh, especially because it was like breaking news at like 8 a.m. today. So there's that. But now we move on to China and Singapore. And now these two have recently held a joint naval exercise in the South China Sea of all places. Um, Wow. I didn't think I'd see it. Well, at least not this soon. Because usually countries here are more than happy to have economic ties in relations to China, but are pathologically adverse to anything more. Like, they don't want integration of their armed forces with China, because they feel that the China, the Chinese would treat them like a province. And to their credit, 
the Chinese probably would, especially when the Chinese claim 90% of the South China Sea. And you can see where they come from. But here, we have Singapore bucking the trend, where they're actually participating in joint naval exercises with China. Singapore has a very strategic position, that, and a very strategic position, if China were to secure, maybe, say, docking rights in Singapore, they could project their power all the way up to the Straits of Malacca, because Singapore is right there. The Chinese could control and dictate who does and doesn't get in and out of the South China Sea, uh, at least the easy way, anyway which is through the Straits of Malacca. The long way would be to go through the Indonesian Isles and then go around Indonesia itself and across the deep blue sea of the Indian Ocean until you reached southern India. That's the long way. That's the hard way. That's the way most people choose not to go. Most people, when they sail through this region, choose to go through the Straits of Malacca, which is that, um, if I were to define it, it's that thin strip of water where Indonesia meets Malaysia. And Singapore is right there at the southern tip of the Indochina Peninsula. So if you look on a map and you scroll on over to where China is. Scrolling over to where China is. And then you go down. Oh, you can follow Vietnam all the way down until you get to, say, like Cambodia, then you have Thailand right there, you go further south past the Gulf of Thailand, and you get Malaysia. Now that, you see Malaysia right there, and you see that big island from Indonesia is right across that body of water right there. That body of water is the Straits of Malacca. All right, That's the Malacca Strait, and you can see as you go to the southern tip of where you see Malaysia right there, there's Singapore. So, Singapore has a very strategic location in this region because if the Chinese would have access to Singaporean ports, they could have de facto control, or at the very least a big say-so, over who does and doesn't get in or out of the South China Sea, which I'm sure the Chinese would appreciate. Everyone else, not so much. <laughs> but I guess when you're Singapore and you're not really a part of the South China Sea dispute anyway, it doesn't affect you all that much. Everyone else, I can imagine, uh, is probably less than pleased with such a prospect. The Vietnamese in particular. But it was a very interesting uh, bucking of the trend, because usually countries in this region are happy to have military ties with India, uh, rather than economic, and economic ties with China rather than military. So it's very interesting watching Singapore buck the trend. And it, uh, we talk about the lines being drawn in the sand, but things aren't set in stone in the Cold War between China and India. Uh, lots, of, and lots of pieces are still in play. Uh, notably, Indonesia and the Philippines are still wild cards in all this, you know. Bring that up until they're not, but always an interesting th region of the world to look at. Now, while we're still on the topic of China, China and its access through friendly ports, they have recently, well, reportedly now, China has a second 99-year lease agreement for their friendly port in Sri Lanka. I was going to attempt the pronunciation of this port's name, I have decided not to do that. I decided not to do that. Now, you know I try my hardest to pronounce these names. I I surrendered on that one. But you can look it up. They have a second 99-year lease agreement. So effectively, they have access to it for 200 years. Unless Sri Lanka just decides to take back the port. You know. Yeah. Politics. <laughs> So, but it's interesting and important. I'd imagine the Indians are very unhappy with that. And uh, I'd imagine they're more than unhappy with that. What, what they'll do about it is, uh, that still remains to be seen. Uh, they would need to build up a navy worthy of the name. 
at the very least, a navy capable of maybe blockading Sri Lanka if they really wanted to do something about it. But um, we'll have to see what the Indians do here. Because India is boxed in, and this is solidified. They're, well, this is effectively the tape on the box right here. This second 99-year lease. I don't know why they just don't just go for 100. I guess 100 has a bad ring to it. A century-long lease. But um, there's that. India is in a tough spot. And countries are now open to the prospect, or at least seemingly open to the prospect, of having military ties with China as well as economic. India's on the back foot here. We'll have to see what they do. Major power plays will need to be made, and those will take time. But India doesn't really have much of a choice in the matter, uh, especially if they want safety in their region. So, we'll have to see, we'll have to see. In other news, the Niger government accuses the opposition of inciting violence in the aftermath of an election. Um, what else is there to say? There, There's political turmoil in the aftermath of an election. And I, I'll get more into that topic later, but uh, I'll just use this to add fuel to the flame so that when we get to it, we'll have stuff to talk about. Around 1 billion in frozen Iranian assets are set to be unfrozen by South Korea after representatives between Iran and South Korea met and resolved the situation uh, between them. This situation being that Iran had previously seized a South Korean oil tanker. I think we talked about that in passing, but, um, and I know Peter Zion is probably... <laughs> Peter Zion is probably just sitting there like, yep, I'm right again, because this is effectively the tanker war. And uh, I read while I was looking uh, for a little bit more information on this subject here, and I guess now is a good time to talk about the side note. Uh, this took me way longer than it should have for me to find out who that South Korean oil tanker got its oil from, which, in my opinion, is a moderately important detail, and... It, the oil tanker got its oil from Saudi Arabia, so it was sailing from Arabia back to South Korea, and as it was going through the Strait of Hormuz, the Iranian uh, revolutionary, ah, frick, their revolutionary guard, it was one of their state-backed militias, they had a bunch of boats and they seized the vessel, and that's what caused this massive, um, this massive dispute between them and South Korea. So there's that. Peter Zion has talked extensively about his belief that there will be a tanker war, but where countries from Northeast Asia, China, uh, South Korea, Japan, and Taiwan will have to sail their own navies to the Persian Gulf load up the crude themselves and then take it back home and pray to God no one shoots at them and tries to take at it. And an interesting thing I noted in this story, um, which is kind of went under the radar for most topics talking, the, for most news agencies who were talking about this, um, what went un under the radar was that South Korea actually sent a destroyer en route to get this t tanker back. <laughs> they sent a destroyer to get it back. And all of this went under the radar because everyone else was focused on the American response and how this is fueling tensions between Iran and America. I am shocked no one else is paying it. Well, seemingly no one else is paying attention to all of the other players in the room here. The players who are more likely to do something in the long term. Anyway, America doesn't seem all that willing to do anything against Iran directly. Everything we do against them is indirect. <clears throat> but South Korea sent a destroyer to come get this oil tanker back. That is a major, major escalation, and I'm just shocked that it went under the radar. They sent a whole destroyer. No one talked about it. But, um... Yeah, they... Uh, I'm just I'm just really shocked that they actually sent a destroyer. 
but this is a major escalation here and it had to be it had to be mediated or at least it was mediated I don't know if it had to be but it was mediated by Qatar uh, because both nations have good relations with Qatar and Qatar stepped in to kind of resolve the situation um likely before that South Korean destroyer made it to the South, the Persian Gulf where we probably could have seen something serious happen. It would have taken a while to get there, mind you. South Korea's on the other side of the Eurasian landmass, but it was on the route. Something could have happened and we could have seen a temporary shootout between two countries we would have never imagined would ever go to war with one another. Iran and South Korea. Oil shipments are not safe. And I guess I'll talk about that later on. Uh, oil, how oil shipments are becoming increasingly less safe. And how we're... In light of us going back to the era of imperial expansion, the rise and fall of empires, and rising and falling of different regional orders along with that is probably going to come a massive wave of piracy uh private and or state backed like there used to be pirates used to be a massive problem in the back in the day and we're seeing it now with iran because that revolutionary militia is state backed and they did this and it almost caused a well, it did cause an inc an international incident, but it almost caused something worse. So what happens when other countries start, you know, unofficially, semi-officially backing pirating operations from their own militias? Iran's not the only one who can play that game. What happens then? There, I'd imagine most countries around the world don't have enough naval capacity to fight pirates everywhere the oil is not going to get home but that is a story for kind of a different day uh, I'll, I'll talk more about it later on I'll just add it to my notes right here uh, <laughs> but uh, we will talk more about the other half of today's news in just a moment alright and we're back now we're going to get into some trouble in the former Soviet space, and there's a lot of it, surprisingly. I'd imagine the Russians, uh, if they're looking at it the way I am, are probably seeing lots of new opportunities arise for them to either cause, tr cause enough trouble to exert influence and extend their grip on the former Soviet space. And we'll start with a meeting between Vladimir Putin and Lukashenko. Lukashenko is the president of Belarus. Well, the dictator of Belarus. And that's self-admitted from him. And they met in Sochi, southern Russia, uh, for talks. Now, this was likely talks for another loan from Russia to Belarus. Uh, and... This is probably going to lead to greater dependence on Russia on the part of Belarus, uh, which I'd imagine the Russians are more than happy with, especially as Russia continues to push for the union state between the two countries. And I'd imagine that in the situation that Belarus is currently in, where they're politically isolated and only have Russia to look to, look forward to, uh, no, well, both. They <laughs> they only have Russia to look to and only Russia to look forward to. But they're stuck in this situation right now, and Russia's their only ally, which means Russia, as of right now, has outsized influence in Belarus, especially with all the people marching in the streets of Belarus in opposition to the results of the election. Just another democratic system that has become really fragile. Now, that could play out in a de facto union state before, like, an official announcement of the union state, similar to how uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan, as of right now, are de facto 
republics within the Russian Federation. Uh, there's no official announcement on that yet, but, you know, with a couple thousand peacekeepers in the region, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, actions speak a lot louder than words. I'll, I'll say that much. We'll, <laughs> we'll leave it there for now. But speaking of Belarus, they have begun to produce a trial. They have produced a trial batch of the Sputnik V vaccine. Uh, now, Sputnik V is the Russian vaccine that is currently being produced and exported all over the world. And I'd imagine is, oh, well, I have already said, is going to be a great boon to the Russian economy and will probably help them get out of the lockdown-induced recession that they were in. So that'll probably get them on the move very quickly and will probably play into the relative power of nations in some way that I probably can't predict right now because we never really know what the Russians are going to do until they do it. But they have a lot, and that's likely because they have a lot of options. And this episode, or at least this segment right now, will be dedicated to looking at just some of the options that they have available to them right now, uh, specifically with regards to expanding their influence in their neighborhood. The former Soviet space. Um, we talked about Belarus and the potential for a de facto union state by enslaving Belarus to Russia via endless amounts of debt. Where, you know, maybe one day, maybe one day Belarus just has too much debt. And they say, you know, Russia, we we really need to get rid of this debt. How can we... How can we get rid of it you know how we can we file for bankruptcy and russia will be like you know there is one way you could get rid of that debt i mean we don't have this debt you do i mean if you were to just wake up one day and you were suddenly russia instead of belarus the debt disappears dirty moves i know i know i know but you know it's see <laughs> i know but hey don't underestimate the dirty games countries will play to gain influence over others, even your friends. So there's Belarus, which I believe will be one of the more peaceful integrations into Russia from former Soviet states. And that's due to long-standing friendly ties between the two countries, uh, even post-Soviet breakup. The others probably won't get such a friendly treatment. Or at the very least, the others outside of maybe Armenia and Kazakhstan. But, well, I don't know how Armenia feels about being occupied, but they really don't have much of a choice. But hey, at least Azerbaijan's occupied too. So now every, everyone's, everyone's equally screwed. But um, that's Belarus. And if we go straight south of Belarus, we get to a little country... A big country known as Ukraine. Now, recently, the Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, and there's a name I can pronounce, he has ex extended the suspension of Oleksandr Tupitsky. Now, Oleksandr is Ukraine's head of the constitutional court, and their president has extended his suspension. Now, this is a move that Tupitsky has called a constitutional coup. Now, I'll, I'll say it right now. I don't need to tell you why the Ukraine is in a bad spot and why this is the worst possible timing for political divisions within the country. I really don't need to tell you this. But I like talking about Russia's prospects and their potential power plays, so I'm going to tell you anyway. <laughs> uh, as many of you know, or at the very least those of you who've watched my channel, my channel, my podcast for a decent number of weeks, you know that every now and then I bring up that there's a bit of a rebellion going on in eastern Ukraine. A group of Russian separatists who have split off and are still to this day engaged in fighting against the Ukrainian army. In eastern Ukraine, the little bit that's snuggled right up 
conveniently against the Russian border. And the Russians have lost a couple hundred men and personnel and tanks and fighters and, you know, S-300s and S-400s and lost a couple missiles that accidentally shot down the Ukrainian Air Force. So, you know, it's a real tragedy. I mean, <laughs> I'm telling you, these dirty games, these dirty games are always fun to watch when you're not the one being played by, you know. But anyway, we have here in the Ukraine, uh, on top of a rebellion that they're still fighting right now, a rebellion that, in my opinion, they can't win because they, the only way they could win this rebellion would be to beat Russia, which I don't think they have the capacity to do. Especially now when the Russians shot down their air force and are effectively supporting a militant group in the Ukraine, not even deploying the actual Russian army itself. They have like a couple thousand men in there who are fighting, but there's a couple hundred thousand active duty in the Russian army and a couple million that the Russians could call upon in the event of like a full mobilized war, uh, like a full mobilization for war. But again, I don't think the Ukraine's going to be able to pull out of this one. They're kind of stuck. And it's just a, a waiting game to see how long the Ukrainians can uh, survive before they're inevitably swallowed whole by the, the rebels. And my guess on how this plays out is that the rebels who, are, who want to secede from the Ukraine and become part of Russia, my guess is that one day the Russians will lose a couple hundred tanks and lose a couple hundred fighters and uh, somehow lose all the men and personnel who serviced and piloted those pieces of equipment. And we may or may not find those men, piece, men and equipment and tanks and jets inside of the Ukraine fighting for the Ukrainian rebels. And those rebels will push west across the whole of the Ukraine taking over the country, and then they secede to Russia, but because they own all of the Ukraine, then all of the Ukraine becomes Russian. That's the way I see this playing out. Otherwise, it'll just happen piecemeal, where the, every, what, every couple years, the Russians will just spawn a new insurrection in the Ukraine. Every time the Russian border expands and swallow the Ukraine piecemeal, and no one will do anything about it. Because to this day, not much actually has been done. Not just about Crimea, which the Russians wholesale annexed, but the eastern Ukraine. A lot of people have just forgot that fighting has even existed. And that is fully beneficial to the Russians, who would really appreciate not having diplomatic attention brought to this subject. At least until it's over, and the Russians have secured power. Because at that point, the Russians probably wouldn't care. They'll admit it themselves. But the on top of all of that, you have corruption scandals at the highest at the highest halls of the Ukrainian government, and it's undoubtedly going to divide the people uh, within their own government at a time when they're technically, and I say technically because they're not really at war with Russia, but they're technically at war with Russia, and they are literally at war with the rebels in their east. This is a terrible time to be going through this right now, but I guess you can't really help it, and you can't help what other countries do to take advantage of it. Major prospect for Russia to make power plays in the Ukraine itself. So that, But that's just the Ukraine. All right. Now, I have talked about how especially in the wake of Russia having de facto control over the Caucasus I talked about how they were either going to hunker down on the Ukraine or start making moves in Central Asia um, especially before they make any attempts at actually doing anything to the Baltic trio uh, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania and it seems the Russians have the 
potential to go after the Ukraine. We don't know what they're going to do. I don't know which direction they'll go in first, but I'd imagine securing their West is going to be of the utmost importance because that's the most vulnerable region. That's where they usually get invaded from outsiders. So having buffer space between their borderlands and their capital, which is Moscow, uh, would probably be of the utmost importance to the Russians. And if you look at how close Moscow is technically to Russia's western border, with even just Belarus or Ukraine or any one of the Baltic countries, it's not that far. Russia's core territories are like right there. And I'm, I'd imagine the Russians don't believe that perpetual peace is a thing. Because every time they believe that, they got invaded. Whether that was in the Crimea, or by Napoleon before that, or by Germany the two times after Crimea, which was the Crimean War, and then World War One and World War Two. So I'd imagine having buffer space is a matter of national security and importance to the Russians. And to Russia's benefit, there aren't many countries in the former Soviet space who really have much that they can do about it. It's just a matter of how Russia goes about doing these things that Russia feels is important to their security and their survival. The Ukraine cannot be allowed to be independent. That's just it. They can't be. That's why the Russians took Crimea for their naval port and access to control the Don River. That's why they have spawned and backed a rebellion in the eastern Ukraine to keep the Ukrainians occupied. And to kind of create a buffer zone between them and other countries. So even if some foreign power were to back the Ukraine, they would still have to deal with a rebellion in the east before they could ever get to Russia proper. In which case the Russians could deploy more assets into the fighting to tie down anyone else. And maybe gain more influence in the process. And that's just the Ukraine. There's also the Caucasus. Now Russia already has de facto control over this region, in my personal opinion. And probably in the opinion of people looking at those couple thousand peacekeepers. But... There's more trouble now in the Caucasus. We have here that the Armenian military is currently pushing for the prime minister to step down. And this, by many, has been seen as a coup. Now, over the past couple days, we've seen the military fly jets over the capital, and we've seen the prime minister refuse to concede. Um, So there's more tensions over this. Likely in the wake of the peace agreement between them and Azerbaijan. Uh, And I brought this up in the episode covering the end of that war. How both countries are angry at their governments over the peace deal. And completely missing and passing over the real winner of that conflict, which is the Russians. Uh, But I guess both of them like Russia enough to give Russia the excuse that Russia needs to send, you know, a thousand, two thousand, four thousand peacekeepers, quote-unquote peacekeepers, into these countries. Uh, peacekeepers who I believe are never going to leave. We'll, we'll have to see how that goes, but I'll make it clear, I don't think they're going anywhere. I'll just say that off the bat. Maybe I'll be right again. So there's that. But it's not just Armenia. And I'm not going to talk about Azerbaijan in this one. I'm actually going to talk about Georgia. The country to the north of Armenia. Smack dab between them and Russia proper. Now Georgia has recently had a contested election. uh, And the opposition leader was recently convicted on charges of inciting an anti-government riot back in 2019. So as you can imagine, he's probably been going through the courts um, since then, uh, up till now when this decision has actually been given, that yes, he caused an anti-government riot in 2019, and that's what they're convicting him over. Um, 
Now, the election was between the candidates Nika Melia of the United National Movement, the political party. Uh, now, Nika Melia, he's the guy who got arrested. Oh, all right. And it was between him and Bedzina Ivanishvili. Ivanishvili. And Ivanishvili is the guy who won. So, again, we have an, yet another instance of the democratic process in countries being exposed to be extremely fragile uh, when situations like this occur. Uh, even though he's going to jail, I don't imagine he's going to just wo- roll over all that easily. Uh, especially if he was willing to go far enough as to incite an anti-government riot. So, we could be seeing more trouble in Georgia. Uh, and if that trouble spills out of control, you could see more Russian peacekeepers in the Caucasus. And then Russia will have real control over the Caucasus and not de facto control over the Caucasus. They'll be able to upgrade it. And Georgia will uh, unofficially be added to the num- the republics within the Russian Federation. Each, like, province... Tech slash state in Russia is a republic of its own that operates within Russia, and that's why they're a federation rather than a republic itself. So, interesting little thing to note about Russia's internal politics and why they're a federation and not a, a unitary or a republic government or democratic government for that matter. So, there's that an unofficial republic could be in the making. We'll have to keep our eyes on Georgia, uh, especially if this gets out of control. We saw what happened with Armenia and Azerbaijan, and Russia may or may not be done. I said that they're probably going to digest their holdings, their new holdings in the Caucasus right now, before they make any new moves. Uh, and a political crisis in Georgia that gets particularly violent could be more than enough of an excuse for the Russians to step in. Now, they'd be patient with it, just like they were with the conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan. But make no mistake, if the opportunity is there, they'll take it. Because it's, again, not a matter of being nice or not nice, but it's a matter of national security for them. The Caucasus are... A national security imperative. You can't have an independent Caucasus. They, just like they can't have an independent Ukraine. No. Kazakhstan and the Central Asian countries can kind of get a pass. Because no one can move through them. They're just ridiculously large. And the infrastructure and logistics would be a nightmare. You can't really come through there to get to Russia. But I'm sure the Russians would appreciate controlling them all the way down to the chain, the series of mountains that outline the former Soviet Union's borders, um, starting from the Caucasus and all the way around to Siberia. It was they hunkered down between all those mountains. I'm sure the Russians would appreciate having that territory and looking thick on the map again. But there's that. So we'll have to keep our eyes on Georgia. I have to keep our eyes on a whole bunch of countries in the former Soviet space, really. It's kind of heating up. But, um, yeah. So, that being said, we have a couple themes of the show that we can talk about now. We haven't had those in quite a while, but we're starting to see some new overarching themes that we can talk about in our closing segment which we'll get to in just a moment. All right, and we're back, and we're getting into our today the ending segment for today. But this time, instead of talking uh, for like two minutes before we close out, we actually have some themes that we can talk about here. And one of the major themes, and I hinted at it throughout the episode, was contested elections and how we're seeing this increasing fragility within democratic systems around the world. And I wanted to kind of talk about this because there's potential, as we can see, for conflict. Internal and 
than to be exploited by external powers, which can breed external conflict. And we kind of take for granted just how sensitive that these democratic processes are, because it's a moment of weakness for any country that engages in them. And I guess America, we kind of understood it, because every time we would go through an election year, some tomfoolery would go down in the Middle East, uh, which would play with whoever the incoming administration was, and they would have to deal with that. So I guess we kind of knew about it, but we, I guess none of us really understood kind of the implications of someone losing and then not backing down or losing and then getting violent, losing support and then dissolving your parliament uh, only for the courts to rule against you. And I, again, I don't expect the prime minister of Nepal to back down if the parliament says to back down, he dissolved the parliament. Why would he listen to them? We have all these different instances now, and it's shocking that there's so many, of the democratic process um, kind of being sidestepped, ignored, beaten, and battered, and it's creating divisions. And whether or not this leads to a trend that says maybe democracy was bad, And maybe we should go for a more authoritarian style of government. Now, that's not me advocating that. But when you have all these stories, you're going to eventually start seeing people who come to that conclusion. And maybe some of them will be successful in starting movements based off of that conclusion. I mean, we also take for granted that democracy is so common and democratic systems are so common in today's era because well, back in the day just just a what a century ago just a, literally a century ago 1921 most countries were still imperial in nature most countries were still authoritarian technically it's well unitary in nature I, i'll say that much it wasn't you get a say in what your government does it's your government does stuff and then you get a say on what you do after and if you i i guess 1921 would be kind of the turning point because after world war one you started seeing the mass democratization of countries around the world but you go back just a little bit farther you know 19 i don't know 17 you had empires kingdoms principalities Monarchs, kings and queens, not very many democracies. And an interesting thing to note about this time period was that there were a lot of people who mocked and made fun of the idea of democracy and people being able to make decisions instead of a king or a queen. And it seems ridiculous to us. But as we look at this future where we could be going back to something more akin to that, maybe we need to keep our eyes open for movements that reject the democratic system in favor of other ones, what be it new or old, that say, this is the guy in charge. He's going to make the decisions. He's going to have people around him that help him make the decisions, and you're going to listen to them, or else. Click, click. And again, it seems ridiculous to us, but mass democratization probably seemed ridiculous to, I don't know, a European monarch just a a hundred and something years ago. And as we enter in these changing times, we could be seeing the tide shift against democratic systems as well and only time will tell whether that's just a speculation or an accurate observation now i'd imagine that many like myself would say hopefully it's just a speculation but we can never be too sure there's a lot of things we didn't predict happening and that could have been one of them but another thing uh that will 
kind of get to in this closing segment here is that I brought up piracy earlier on and how that situation between Iran and South Korea could have gotten way worse than it did. So thank goodness for some quick thinking and diplomacy with the regional players. Shouts out to Qatar for mediating before that South Korean destroyer made it there. But let's face the facts. A South Korean destroyer was en route to the Persian Gulf to get their oil tanker back. Now, what would you send a destroyer to do in the event that you sent a destroyer anywhere for whatever reason? What would you do with that destroyer? Would you ask nicely? Okay, so you ask nicely, but what happens when you ask nicely and the other guy says, you know what? Screw you. What then? Do you ask nicely again or do you point your guns at him and ask with a bit more oomph to your voice? And what happens when that fails? Well, maybe you don't ask at all. And that made me think, because over the past week or so, the past couple weeks, I've been watching some good history-based YouTube channels like Kings and Generals and the Pike and Shot channel. And I was watching the rise of the Portuguese Empire, how they reached India by establishing all these trade colonies along the coastline of Africa, like literally just uh, uh, a string of pearls all along the African coastline until they had the ability to project their ships into the Indian Ocean. I watched how the port how they reached India and how they clashed with pirates along the way and how in order to reroute the trade routes of spices from the from Indonesia and Southeast Asia to reroute that trade route from away from the Middle East which went through the Ottoman uh the Ottomans and Egypt to reroute it to go all the way around Africa the long way back to Portugal they operated like pirates themselves by destroying and sinking commerce and then saying, you know what? You 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 need some protection. They kind of acted like the mafia where they would smash your windows or in that case they would smash your boat and then turn around and look at you like, you see that? Maybe you need some protection, huh? Uh if you what do you, what do you think? What do you think, Mike? You think he needs some protection? I don't know. If he doesn't, I don't know what'll happen to him. And <laughs> it's it's sounds as t- it sounds as terrible as it is, but it it happened. A government operated like a pirate. Well, the government fleets, the official government navy of Portugal, operated like a organization of pirates. Now, they fought other pirates, too, and they fought regional powers of the day, which eventually included the Ottomans as the Ottoman Empire expanded outwards. I watched the rise of the Spanish Empire, too, and the major theme for them in the Caribbean, which is where they had most of their colonial expeditions, the major thing for them was also piracy, uh, both on the open seas uh by independent pirates and but more threatening was state-sponsored piracy which was being done by official government naval vessels now again as we talk about and as we watch this return to an older way of doing things where you have once again the rise and fall of empires and the competition between those empires as they rise and fall over markets resources people land, strategic bits of it, or economic bits of it, as they fight and compete, you could see very easily this kind of piracy. Uh, The instability enabling independent pirates to pop up where government reach of certain empires is weakest, or you get state-sponsored piracy where the government writes a, a blank check for some organization that makes their weapons and says hey if you can do this 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 this, and this or maybe hey we need you to screw with them a little bit 
so they uh, can't mess with us while we're doing this over here. And whatever company, be it government or just private working with the government, they go out, they have full authority to open fire and will at will, and you have pirates. State-sponsored pirates. And if the other guy, the guy who got shot at, has anything to say about it, you go, oh, that's not us. That's a, that's a pirate. What do you do? So as we enter into this era of a return to the rise and fall of empires and a return to the competition between them, um, and even potentially a return to non- or straight-up anti- democratic systems of government where the few people in the government um, have carte blanche to do whatever they want uh, responsibly or irresponsibly depending on how they feel at, at the time and you get these blood feuds between monarchs and their bloodlines you could see conflict and even without even without anti-democratic forms of government, you see this conflict between South Korea and Iran, countries who previously had nothing to do with anything with each other, who were previously neutral towards one another. But suddenly, you have this conflict between them, and it opens the door, or rather exposes that the door was already open to state-backed piracy, and the problem it can create, especially if your trade is unprotected. And most countries around the world don't have the naval capacity to protect their trade. And that's a major point that Peter Zion makes. Now, maybe with a string of pearls like Portugal or China is trying to build right now, you might be able to protect your trade. But what happens when a, a local power challenges you? You have to be able to beat them like the Portuguese did. Or you suffer a major loss and you have to rebuild your navy. And that can take time. It could take decades. But um, lots of new things, new trends to be on the lookout for. Especially as we watch how, the, how all those other trends that we've noticed uh, start to unfold. Very, very interesting. It's always the little things. It's always the little things. And then those little things pile up and they become big things that everyone talks about. But it's fun to be in early and then say, hey, I talked about that. But I'll digress. But these are some very interesting things to look at, uh, particularly the competition between empires. Uh, we wouldn't call these countries empires yet, but I imagine... As countries start to try to expand their influence in the future, we might start calling them empires. But that is for another day. But as for today, that is all I have for you. Now, I do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. And if there's one thing we know here, it's that the world, it's changing. But we are going to have fun watching it together. Now, I've been your host, Sean Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So until we meet again next Monday, servus.